Welcome to the Before You Buy or Sell a Business podcast, where we help buyers and sellers learn more about the acquisition process, discuss recent transactions, and stay up to date on the latest news in the market. Here's your host, Jared Johnson. All right, cool. So today I'm here with uh, Sean Seaman and Dustin Siegel, both with SD Business Advisors. So you guys have some pretty big news. Just launched SD Business Advisors. So how's that going so far, Sean? Well, so far it's been uh, a little bit of a whirlwind. There's just so many different things to take care of and only so much you can do ahead of time. So uh, it's been it's been really fun, really fulfilling. We've been getting really good feedback from our our clients past and present, and uh, most importantly, the advisors that are on our team. So we feel really good about where we're at in the marketplace and uh, excited about the future. Cool. Awesome. What about you, Dustin? Yeah, we've we've only really been up and running under this brand for the last uh, right, just under two months. And we've already closed, I believe, nine or 10 deals wow. in that time and a uh, record number of listings coming through. So uh, yeah, the team is fully on board and, and we're really excited. Awesome. Yeah, it's impressive. So, you know, it's pretty interesting to me that you both work together on every deal, right? Has it always been that way? Yeah, it's kind of unique because when we both got started, we were only a year out of college. We're in our early 20s and cold calling off of the same list, trying to get business owners to sit down and talk to us uh, without shutting the door on our face. And uh, you know, we went on a few listing appointments individually on our own and we'd come back and tell our war stories and, you know, we were kind of talking about, you know, what's going well and what's not. And early on, there's so much going on in your head about am I asking the right questions and, and what comes next that it became a little bit intimidating at first when you haven't sold a business yet and you're trying to go for your first couple listings. And so we came up with a strategy to, to go on some listing appointments together. Uh, one of us could be engaging with the client, asking questions. The other one's ca- taking copious notes. Uh, and then we could kind of tag team the conversation. And it seemed to go uh, a little bit smoother that way. And, um, you know, we've known each other since middle school. And so, um, you know, we kind of have, have a, a good, uh, good thing going in terms of, you know, knowing what the other person's thinking and, and not talking over ourselves. So, um, yeah, that since the beginning, I guess, 16 years ago, that's, that's the way that we, uh, that we got into this crazy industry. So Dustin, have you guys ever gotten a fight? Tell the truth. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. We're, I mean, we're like brothers. We go so far back, but yeah, yeah to, to add on to what Sean was saying, um, we ran a few other businesses previous to, uh, this company, um, in college, we, uh, ran some surf camps and, and sold surfboards, uh, to clients. We also ran a little paint, uh, house painting operation. So we knew we worked well together. We were actually literally door knocking at the time. So we would go door to door selling, selling paint jobs and we just kind of fed off each other's energy and, and it worked really well. So we stuck with it. Wow. That's interesting. So I didn't know that mm-hmm. kind of fun. So, yeah. but do you guys, so you guys grew up together. You knew each other since middle school. Did you go to the same college? Nope. Different college. Where'd you go, Dustin? I went to Cal State San Marcos and Sean went to UCSD. Nice. Um, it was funny, actually, right out of college, we were um, both recruited to the same company mm. uh, just out of college. And I, I don't remember who called who, but we called each other and said, hey, I, I just got my first job. And he's like, funny thing, I just got my first job. <laughs> same company. That's funny. We, we both got hired in the same financial planning uh, company. So uh, we gave that a run for about a year or so, um, you know, basically at a 
in the early stages, they want you selling life insurance. And so it just wasn't our cup of tea and, and this opportunity presented itself. And so we kind of took a leap of faith and yeah, here we are 16 years later. Yeah, you have a lot of people that get out of college, kind of don't know exactly what they want to do. Um, so try out a few things, see what you can get to work. But at least you had some of a somewhat of a business background, you know, selling paint and surfboards. You know, Sean, I know you're a avid surfer, so I'm sure that was a little easy for you to sell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, going to UCSD and was on the surf team there is kind of all came came naturally to, you know, come up with some some business ideas that you're also passionate about. Um, but yeah, I was a management science major, which is as close as you could get to uh, economics and business at UCSD, which is a, a big science school. Um, but yeah, as soon as we finished, I mean, the job market was was very interesting because this is 2006, 2007. Uh, so obviously, you know, we all remember what happened with the economy at that point. So, um, it was just kind of trial by fire, try to figure out, <laughs> take it day by day. Yeah. So then how did you decide to get into brokerage? What, what brought you over there? Yeah, we, my, my dad's a PhD physicist and he was at a crossroads in his career path. Uh, he was for a long time, uh, you know, high up in a research and development company and he was kind of just looking for that, that next thing. He wanted to have some, some business ownership and, and wanted to get into a, a new venture. Uh, and it kind of coincided right with us being a little frustrated with financial planning and, and the state of the economy. And, and we had an opportunity to all kind of work together and, uh, and start a business brokerage. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where it all began and the rest is history. Yeah, I always thought it was funny having your dad's background, um, you know, being a business broker, but he's a PhD in science. I, I think, uh, I don't know if you ever know this, but one time we were at a meeting years ago and he said something about having his, his doctorate and I, I kind of laughed and I said, let me guess, was it in some kind of science or like chemistry or something? He's like, yeah. <laughs> like, How'd you know? I could kind of tell just for his personality, you know, he's very technical and pretty cool background, so... Yeah. So obviously, you know, it's uh, fast forward. You've done a lot of deals, um, you know, starting off. Uh, there was probably some some hard times, especially the, the uh, you know, era that we were in when you guys started. Um, now it seems like you've kind of slowly, gradually kind of upped the, the size of deals that you'll do. Um, so maybe walk me through a little bit of that, Dustin, kind of how you got to that point. Is that ultimately what you wanted to do when you started or did it kind of just you know evolve that way yeah to be quite honest starting out we we were willing to take anything because we we needed to cut our teeth somewhere and we uh you know we're pretty young and inexperienced in the business world so we um went after the you know mom and pop businesses we really enjoyed serving that community um in a lot of ways those deals as we find out now are more challenging than some of the larger deals. Um, typically you're dealing with first time business owners that are selling and, and first time buyers. And so there's just a lot more uh, emotions that tend to go into those types of deals and handholding and that sort of thing. But it, it gave us a really good foundation of just all aspects of the, of the business selling process. Um, and, uh, you know, we had to kind of go through that to get to that next level to really impress the larger businesses. And so, um, technology has really just evolved for us as well um, over time. Um, early days, it was all about cold calling. I mean, email marketing was really not even a thing quite yet. Um, LinkedIn wasn't even around yet. Uh, so it really was just just pounding the phones, and we had a lot of success doing that. Um, but, uh, yeah, fast forward to, to today, and, uh, you know, we really enjoy the, the market that we're servicing. We're 
generally uh, businesses in the one to 25 million range is kind of our, our average space. Um, but our team as a whole, um, everyone has their own specialty. So some, some of them are serving the real small mom and pop community. Some are more restaurant focused, some are, um, you know, in the fitness industry and, and other segments. So, yeah, it's good. At least you, although you're focused on the stuff, you know, a million plus plus, uh, you still have a place for, for those deals that don't fit within that, that category. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see that, um, you know, there's there's a lot of people that kind of don't completely understand the difference maybe between, you know, business acquisition, Main Street, and then M&A. And, of course, you know, the publicly traded stuff is, is you know, a whole other animal. But um, maybe you can, Sean, kind of give us a little bit of information on kind of the difference between uh, what you do as a broker uh, between doing a $500,000 restaurant franchise and a $25 million deal um, as far as kind of what your role is when it comes to those. You mean besides the just adding a couple zeros? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the, the process as a whole is very similar, but there's a lot of uh, unique things that can come into play in a more sophisticated business. Which, when you're selling a you know five to twenty five fifty million dollar company, there's going to be a lot more infrastructure. There's going to be a lot more legal due diligence that has to happen. Uh, the, the smaller deals tend to be you know more owner operated. Uh, the the buyer has to envision themselves working in the business. Uh, they are going to do their financial due diligence and make sure the business is making what what that was represented in the the offering memorandum. But in the the more middle market type deals, there's just a lot more scrutiny that needs to take place. Uh, there's a lot more different advisors that are involved. You're working with the buyer's attorneys, the seller's attorneys, uh, CPAs on both sides. Typically, you're doing a lot more tax planning. Uh, there's a lot more kind of structure and thought process that goes into uh, you know, how the transition period is going to go, how involved that owner is in the day-to-day. Um, there's a, you know, some different deal structures that come into play like earnouts or balloon payments or, uh, you know, if there's client concentration issues, for example, uh, that a certain business has, maybe there's going to be a holdback to make sure that that client transitions successfully with the business. So it just adds some different unique elements to the business sales process. Uh, but the nuts and bolts of it in terms of, you know, getting an LOI signed, working on the asset purchase agreement, going through due diligence, releasing contingencies, that part of it stays fairly consistent between Main Street and Middle Market. Uh, there's just a lot more moving parts. Um, and you really, as a business advisor, need to be able to dive into the details of the business uh, a lot more to make sure that you can kind of foresee potential roadblocks like assignability language and contracts and things like that. Uh, so it doesn't catch anyone off guard as you're trying to get to the closing table. All right, and Dustin, so looking at a you know more main street type deal compared to you know upper middle market you know kind of verging more on the m a side as far as how long those deals take is are you seeing a big difference in in the amount of time from start to finish it it can uh, but we've had some of our smallest deals take the longest we've had a couple small deals that you know are in escrow for 12 to 18 months due to different complications so um time timing wise it's it, it actually some of the bigger deals tend to be a little bit more efficient because you have people um, a lot more advisors as Sean mentioned involved and so in that process everyone's kind of moving things forward as opposed to relying on you know the mom and pop 
seller to get all the information uh, to you because they do their own books, they might not have up-to-date books. And so that's a real big piece of the due diligence for the buyer. And if they're not using a CPA, for example, and they need to you know, put something together and they're still running their business day to day, that can cost them delay. So it, re- it really is pretty case specific. Okay. And I'd say one of the, the bigger things that you run into, Sean, on the, the bigger deals is mainly dealing with the attorneys, right? The reps and warranties stuff. So exactly. maybe you could just give us a little background on that for somebody that maybe is looking to either sell or buy in that price range so that they're kind of prepared and understand exactly how that process typically goes. So yeah, an attorney's job is typically to look at different risk factors, whether they're on the buy side or sell side. If there's going to be some sort of post-closing issue, is my client contractually in a good position? And so it gets frustrating sometimes for us as an intermediary because we can put you know these great deals together. You got all this momentum. You have you know the relationships are really strong between the buyer and seller. And then as we get closer and closer to closing, there's so much more emphasis on the reps and warranties, like you mentioned, or the non-compete agreement specific language, or you know things of that nature, where you're looking at okay, if things go awry after closing and the seller lied about something or didn't disclose something properly to the buyer, what are our protections. You know, how can we try to capture back some of the money that we're paying at closing for the business? And then the seller's attorney is obviously trying to protect their client from, you know, making sure that they're not exposed to having to give a huge portion or all of the money back if there was some issue that the seller thinks the buyer misran the business or mismanaged it. So uh, in the larger transactions, you tend to have a little bit more back and forth and redlining between the attorneys on things that aren't the material components of the deal from our perspective. They're not arguing over price and terms as much as they are about the what if scenarios. Uh, And so, yeah, it's been definitely very eye opening to kind of learn about the different ways that you can approach those types of uh, those types of discussions. And our role as an intermediary in, in those transactions is really to try to keep the eye on the prize and not let uh, not let people get caught up in those details too much to where they get deal fatigue or don't want to move forward and you know start thinking about the doom and gloom scenarios and for, lose light of why they were buying this business in the first place. Yeah, I'm sure it can feel sometimes like the attorneys are running away with it and uh, you know causing a lot more harm than good at, at the end of the day and, and running up their bill while also <laughs> running the deal out the door. So yeah, they do get paid by the hour. Yeah. <laughs> typically. So yeah. yeah, we're often playing the mediator um, between the attorneys. So the attorneys, like Sean said, their their role is to protect their client at all costs. So anything they're not comfortable with, they're going to push back on. Um, what's important in our role is to talk to the attorneys and let them know, hey, here's what's important to the client because we talk to the clients on a daily basis. Let's let's focus on what's most important to them and maybe we can give in on, on some of these other issues. A lot of times the roadblocks in a deal, there might be five or ten things that obstacles in our way. But when you get down to it and you actually have the buyer tell you, hey, what's important to you? And then seller, same thing. A lot of times they're different things. You get into a, you know, a problem or a tug of war when, when they have the same major conflict. But if you can get, you know, the buyer to give in on the things that are, are really important to the seller, but not so to the buyer or vice versa, you know, that, that's a big part of our role is just having that communication. Yeah. Trying to get them to kind of match up. Yep. <laughs> you know, there's always a little bit of give and take, but as long as both parties are determined to get it done, 
Um, and then as far as, uh, so let's see, you, you guys have done some pretty big deals recently, right? I know you did one for, I think it was 25 million. Um, so on the deals, the 20, $25 million deals, what are you seeing as far as the changes on due diligence from a buyer standpoint? There's just a lot more players involved. Uh, you're going to have a lot more analysis done up front on the, the buyer side. Um, luckily, the sophistication of those businesses is usually a lot better as well. So in that particular deal, the sellers were confident enough to put their CFO in touch with the buyer's due diligence group. And so they were able to work together to create their data room and populate it with all the information they needed, provided certain secure access uh, where that would help kind of streamline the process. So that was obviously super helpful, but it's not always the case. It's not always a situation where the sellers feel confident enough to introduce someone on their team, especially a key employee uh, that's high up and, and maybe you know an executive in the company until they know the deal's happening. Um, so this was a unique situation on the $25 million transaction where uh, that CFO had kind of grew up with the sellers and, and was part of those discussions. And so they felt confident introducing her into the into the dialogue. So that, that was extremely helpful. But um, in general, it's just the due diligence period will take a little bit longer. Maybe we're talking, you know, 30 days to, to 45 days on some transactions uh, just, you know, to make sure that the trailing 12 month figures are all looking good. And, you know, they haven't lost any clients recently that hasn't been shown in the financials yet. Um, there, and, you know, there's thousands of clients in those situations and some different contracts. And so you kind of break the due diligence up into a couple different segments. You got your financial due diligence and then the legal due diligence piece. Um, so, yeah, it can take a little bit longer, but as long as you have the cooperation of of the sellers and they're engaged in that process, uh, it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, prolong the closing. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, you know, working on a smaller deal, a lot of times the uh, the financials are either you know, halfway put into QuickBooks and then the CPA cleans them up at the end of the year, or sometimes they don't even have any kind of year-to-date financials. I, I often find that funny when I, I'll ask for year-to-date financials and they're like, well, what do you mean? I give my bank statements. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you don't know how you're doing this year? Well, no, I have money in my account. I'm good. You're like, No, no, that's not how it works. So, um, you know, going up the ladder, you're seeing, you know, typically they've got in-house bookkeeping or maybe quarterly compiled financials from a CPA. So it's a little easier to, to kind of grab the information you need. Um, so if you had somebody that was thinking of selling and they're probably going to hopefully be in that range of 15 to 20 million plus, um, what are some of the things that, that you would discuss with them? Because I'm sure that happens often, right? They come to you and say, hey, we're thinking about selling this sometime in the future. So what is that conversation like? What do you normally say to them that this is what they need to work on? This is what they need to have ready um, at that point in time? And what are you kind of looking at to determine when is the best time for them to, to get that listed and sold? Yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of our prospects, we meet five, 10 years before they're really ready. They're just trying to learn about the process, <clears throat> understand the baseline valuation and how we arrived at that number. Um, and then giving them tips on what buyers are looking for. So if, I'll give you an example of a landscape company. You can have one landscape company that does all new construction installations, doing $10 million a year in revenue. And then you can have another landscape company doing the same revenue, but it's all maintenance guaranteed contracts. Well, of course, the, the maintenance guaranteed contracts are going to be more valuable to a buyer. So if I'm talking to a, or to a landscape company that does mostly new construction, my first piece of advice is gear up this maintenance division because uh, that's going to really increase the value 
Um, so more than just diving into the numbers itself, <clears throat> understanding the qualities and how they run the, the business and giving them some, some helpful advice along the way. Um, but again, if they're a $15, $25 million valued company, we want to make sure they do have really solid CPA or a CFO or someone who's on top of the financials. Messy financials are going to kill a deal in, in that range. You can get away with it on some of the smaller businesses. It's not uncommon for like a mom and pop restaurant to have, you know, very uh, um, interesting <laughs> financials. <laughs> yeah. To say, uh, but if you're a fifteen to twenty-five million dollar plus business, you you really have to have, you know, solid financials and and be able to answer the questions that buyers are going to have. Okay, and what's what's kind of the ideal time for somebody in that range to start actively thinking about selling? You know, how far in advance should they come to you and say, "I, I want to get this sold"? I I really always say it's never too early. Um, Day one, when you're starting the business, you should be starting the business with an exit strategy in mind. Even if you don't want to sell the business, if you think you're going to hand it down to your son and that is your absolute plan, have a contingency plan. We can't tell you how many times we get calls from people who had a plan of their child, you know, their son taking over the business or something like that. And it just doesn't go to plan. Um, or there's a divorce situation or a partnership dispute, um, just health reasons, life happens. And so it's really never too early to, to start gearing up towards that exit strategy and running your business as if it were for sale. Um, so again, yeah, you can, you can't start too early on that. Yeah. Some great advice. So Sean, do you work with buyers? I mean, there's, you need, you need both to get a deal done, right? So we're here at SD business advisors. We're definitely more seller focused. Um, we, we've been very, very blessed in this, uh, this local market that we've never had issues finding buyers for good businesses and good listings. So typically if, when we list a, a business that we know hits on a lot of those attributes and factors that Dustin was just talking about, uh, we know we're going to get a really positive buyer response. Um, you know, we have we have a da- strong database of buyers that have looked at our, you know, 100 plus listings over the years and are consistently reaching out to us and kind of giving us their wish list. So we, we have a proactive approach to be able to reach out to those buyers that are already within our database, uh, as well as uh, ability to to reach out to the general public, you know, especially if it's a strategic acquisition target or something like that. Um, so yeah, we're definitely more focused on, on the sell side, uh, but we, we absolutely will do everything we need to do to accommodate the, the business buyer, make sure that they have, you know, the proper forms and, and things to, to conclude the transaction, make sure when it's necessary that they can get in touch with, uh, the appropriate attorneys and or CPAs to assist with due diligence. Uh, and we, we do as much upfront due diligence as we can when we take on a new engagement so that we're giving the buyer a full package of information to make an informed decision about if this is a business that they would be interested in, in purchasing. And then at, after that, then it's more about matchmaking, making sure the seller and buyer's personalities mesh that, you know, however, if you're getting financing, that the buyer is going to be qualified for that. The last thing we want to do is lock up a deal, a good deal for our seller with a buyer that, you know, just kind of tells us a story and then, you know, isn't actually going to follow through and, and be able to pull it off. Uh, so, so we're very involved in the communication with the buyers, but in terms of kind of our representation and, and what we are focused on on a, a regular basis, it's definitely finding those quality businesses. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Same with the buyers, right? So if, uh, do you ever have it happen where somebody's kind of got a deal halfway put together, maybe the seller 
is approached by somebody or they want to sell it to, you know, maybe one of their key employees or something, will you take that on and kind of usher it through as well? And what, and how does that kind of look? Yeah, we will take on some, that, that becomes a little bit more of a consulting project and <clears throat> depending on the size and scope, obviously we'll, we'll evaluate whether we can add value. Um, if they've already negotiated the majority of the terms and they're going to use attorneys anyways, then for our role would be more limited, but more quarterbacking just to kind of keep things moving along. Uh, but a lot of times they haven't negotiated any of those terms. So they're, they're saying, Hey, I have a key employer, even a family member that's going to wants to buy me out. I'm we're clueless on what it's worth and how we could structure a win-win deal. And that's where we'll come in and, and, and kind of facilitate from there. And really our, most of our work begins at that stage. So finding the buyer, we, we have tons of buyer inquiries. It's really piecing deals together that, that makes sense for both parties. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's kind of been a, a little bit more of a topic lately is private equity and starting to see the private equity groups come down into lower, more kind of middle market, even some, you know, smaller Main Street type stuff as they're rolling uh, deals up. Um, I would say historically and, and obviously jump in if I'm off, but they were looking at stuff around a million dollars in EBITDA before they would even kind of like want to take a peek at it. And I feel like now we're starting to see them come down to 500, 600,000 in EBITDA. Um, is that kind of your experience as well? Are you starting to see more of that? Definitely. I think it's, you know, whenever there's a frothy market, like it's kind of been the last couple of years, you got to do something to differentiate yourself. If you want to get that deal flow and consistent deals uh, happening in your pipeline. Uh, we worked this last year with a specific not necessarily a private equity group, more of a strategic acquirer that was was buying a lot of property management businesses. Uh, we sold you know four different deals to them in the last uh, last twelve to eighteen months, and so you know their their uh, w- the way that they approach the buying process was very different than a lot of the typical buyers that we work with, and and even a little bit different than like private equity private equity. Um, and so we were because we had that success and had that relationship, we were able to parlay that into putting some really good off-market deals together where we would, you know, proactively reach out to to business owners in that space and property management and, and see if, hey, would you entertain an off-market offer? So that was a little bit unique for us in this last year. But going back to kind of your original question about private equity, we really like to be working with the decision makers. So if there's a small boutique private equity group or family office where we're communicating with the person that's actually making the decision and investing the money, we're happy to work with them all the time. Uh, the problem is we get so many emails and calls from these, you know, these people that were working for the private equity group that are just trying to put another deal in the pipeline, and then they're going to whittle those deals down. And out of the you know ten plus deals they have in the pipeline, they plan on only closing one of them. Um, and, and we do not want to put our sellers in that position. So we don't do too much work with private equity unless it's someone that we've already had really good success with or have a personal connection with. Um, and if they're really specific about what they're looking for, you know, it drives us nuts. We get e- emails from people, I want a business with a 1 million to 5 million EBITDA in a service-based sector with recurring revenue and the owner's retiring. And we laugh. It's like, yeah, everyone wants that. Yeah. <laughs> of course. It's like when someone asks if, they, if you have any absentee businesses yeah. for sale. It's like, if exactly. we did, we'd buy them. I don't want, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to work. I want to pay 2x multiple. Right. Yeah. Get my money back in. Exactly. Yeah. And can they carry the whole thing? Totally. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so if you have a seller, I, I think the common uh, conception with, or, or perception, sorry, with, 
uh, sellers is they don't want to deal with private equity buyers. Um, I know that even kind of the the term private equity is a little scary sometimes for people. Um, so if you have a seller that is in that range that you're starting to see people come after more, um, do you kind of prep them ahead of time that, hey, the buyer could be private equity? What is something that a seller should be kind of ready for? Should they be scared of it being a private equity? Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. So private equity can mean a lot of things. It's a, kind of an ambiguous term. I mean, it, it really, by definition, is just pooling private money together to buy a business. And so you have your massive billions of dollars, private equity groups out there that are very different from the, you know, I've had people call me that call themselves private equity, but it's a guy and his brother, you know? And so that's what I'll explain to the seller is that we can't just have a broad stroke view of private equity buyers or search funds or anything in of that nature. We really have to vet them individually and just see, you know, first of all, are, are is there anyone within the private equity firm that actually is going to be an operator in some capacity, or are they totally relying on the business to, to function on its own? Um, number two, like Sean said, do they have a more narrowed, you know, search criteria? If someone in, identifies as private equity, but they gave me a really narrow range of what they're looking for. We're looking for a specific type of manufacturing company with this much revenue and this range and, you know, that's someone I'll pick up the phone and actually call them and talk valuation philosophy, talk about other acquisitions they've made, that sort of thing. I'm going to take that person seriously as opposed to that uh, person Sean described that is just a low level, you know, person that's just trying to get deal flow into their firm. And they they tend to just rip apart your NDA and, and uh, it's going through different channels. By the time it gets to a decision maker, they're like, I have absolutely no interest in this. Why would you bring it to my desk? And we just wasted a lot of our seller's time. So um, Sean and I, you know, and, and our team, we've just gotten really good over the years at, at identifying, you know, which ones are credible and which ones we should take to that next level of even signing an NDA. Yeah. So you see uh, a lot of times in the you know smaller mom and pop world, uh, those sellers are nervous to sell, um, partially because they don't want to hand their baby over to somebody else, right? They've worked real hard on that. Do you feel like on the bigger deals, you're seeing that as well? Or does it kind of transition to more of, uh, I've got the business here, I know what I'm doing, you know, I, I, I'm ready to hand it off. It becomes more about a business transaction than, than that. Are you, are you seeing that as well? Our recent d- deals that we've done the last couple of years that are in that, you know, five to 50 million range, I feel like there has been less emotion involved on the sell side. Um, it doesn't change that this is a huge life decision for them and they have to have some sort of compelling reason to sell. Otherwise, they're just going to maintain unrealistic expectations. And when conflict comes up or, you know, there's something that the buyer's asking for, they don't want to give in on, uh, they can just stand firm and say, I, I really don't have to sell unless you go with exactly the terms I'm looking for. I'm not interested. So it's a fine balance. But, um, you know, for us, luckily, the, the last couple larger deals that we've closed on, there has been a little bit less of that emotional psychologist handholding. You know, once they make a decision and the LOI is signed, they're kind of like, okay, we're, we're in this and we're going to see it through as long as something crazy doesn't come up. Um, so that's, yeah, that's been nice, but uh, it's not always the case. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's different. Some great information so far. So 
if you had to think about next year, the year after that, um, you know, we've got a kind of ever-changing economy. Got people that are a little nervous right now that, you know, rates are gone up. Um, you know, maybe they're not going to get the same return and everything. How are you looking at it? And then from there, how are you factoring that in when you're valuing a business? Is it affecting it at all? Uh, yeah, to a small degree. I think if inflation continues its current course, we're going to see interest rates continue to rise and, and uh, you know, some uh, buyers will take that into consideration. Um, for us, we embrace change. So any, any kind of market fluctuations are generally pretty good for us. Um, sometimes sellers are a little bit spooked by that and that, that brings them to the decision of maybe I should sell now as opposed to waiting a few years. Um, but in reality, I think this go around, there's still a lot more cash on the sidelines than there was in the last recession where everyone was over leveraged. No one had cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people are going to continue to want to invest in businesses. So I don't see valuations, especially on the, you know, one to $50 million range. I don't see them getting impacted. I think maybe some of the smaller businesses might see some, some impacts, especially people that are need an SBA loan. You know, they're looking at that seven and a half percent, you know, mortgage rate and, and even more for SBA. And now it becomes a little scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could bring down multiples a little bit. So we we're having those conversations with our clients, but there's definitely no panic mode. Um, you know, I, I don't see, even if we enter a recession, it being anywhere near what, what we went through previously. Yeah. I think the good, the good deals are going to continue to happen. The deals that make sense. Uh, if you look at, you know, simple ROI calculation on a business that sells for three X, you know, if, if the business is solid and consistently making that money and has good employees in place, there's no reason any investment investor in the right mind wouldn't want to take a, a pass at it. Um, you know, you look at, the, the way that the real estate market is kind of, you know, the valuations have come up significantly. And now there's kind of a little bit of a hiatus with a lot of investor activity that I'm seeing in, you know, apartment deals and just in that world. Um, and like Dustin said, there's a lot of money on the sidelines. I got to put it somewhere. People are a little bit worried about the stock market. You know, crypto did its own thing. Like people are not sure necessarily what the next step is. And a lot of people are super liquid. So the, the good business opportunities that come up, our phone will always be ringing and there's always going to be a, a solid buyer pool for it. So people don't, don't pull back. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. You buy in the market you're in, you know, it's like the people that st- sit on the sidelines for too long miss opportunities. So, um, you know, even, even during the last recession, there were people that were panicking and short selling their houses when they didn't mm-hmm. need to, but they're just, you know, fearful. It would never come back time after time. It, it it's always been proven we always rebound at some point. Some recessions last longer than others. There's always a rebound. Look at the housing prices now compared to uh, pre-recession last go around. I mean, if you if you short sell, you're you're kicking yourself. So yeah, um, yeah. There's still going to be opportunities, and and uh, you know, just don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So well, there's been some really good information so far. I appreciate you guys' time. Um, I always ask two questions at the end. So. Uh, we'll start with you, Dustin. So first question would be, do you have a mentor? Uh, have you had a mentor? You know, walk me through that. Yeah, I, I'd say um, some some family members. So my my uh, my parents, um, you know, I had an awesome upbringing. My mom ran her own uh, small business. So growing up, I 
I really admired that. Um, I had some aunts and uncles that also were entrepreneurs. So I just got to see, um, you know, very early on, uh, business was always in my mind. I wanted to run a business. I did not want to work for, for somebody. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say it's one or one person in particular, but definitely, um, you know, a lot of family members that, that have kind of guided me and inspired me to become what, what we are doing now. Yeah. What about you, Sean? Yeah. Mentor is a funny thing. I feel like at different stages in life, I've had different people that, you know, came up huge for me, you know, when I was maybe doubting myself on making the right move. Um, you know, and, and it's not necessarily someone that I'd have always looked up to like, you know, rich dad, poor dad, I want to, I want to do exactly what he does. And, you know, it's, it's always been, you know, a fluid situation. Um, and, you know, me and Dustin have picked each other up individually when one of us is down with something happening. And, you know, of course my, my parents and my family, I've had some amazing mentors in my family as well that are, you know, amazing entrepreneurs and, and seen so much success. And so, uh, just really grateful for all the opportunities that we've been given, uh, to get into this industry in the first place. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can continue the motivation and success. Um, but yeah, mentor, I think you gotta always be looking for, for the next mentor. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. And second question, Dustin, what motivates you? I, you know, I've, I've said for a long time now, if I won the Powerball tomorrow, I would still do this. I just really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's a new challenge every day. Um, I enjoy doing deals, but we have graduated to this next step of, of becoming mentors essentially to our team. So mm -hmm. we have a team of about 20 advisors now. And, uh, I just really, it, it's very rewarding to be able to solve a problem for them that for that, you know, they're, they're thinking this deal is dead. This is the ultimate roadblock. It's not going to work out. And I've encountered it in the past. And so I can provide that answer or Sean can, can provide that answer that kind of saves the deal. And, and that to me is just super rewarding. Um, and then on top of that, it's seen, you know, our clients success and it's seen, um, you know, helping someone retire, uh, who didn't think it was possible. Um, helping a buyer get into a business where, you know, they were, they just got laid off from their job and they didn't know what they were going to do. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of rewarding factors and a lot of things that motivate me. And then of course my family and just creating a, a good life for us, being able to, um, you know, enjoy the fruits of our labor, so to speak and, and travel and that sort of thing. Yeah. Some, some good reasons there. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I think there's a lot, lot to be grateful for and a lot of, uh, motivating factors to, you know, continue going. Um, I'm really big on lifestyle and, and family and, you know, Dustin and I, one of the big decisions early on as to why we wanted to work together was because we never wanted to be a slave to our job or our career. Uh, and so it, it offered us the luxury when we have 20 listings and 20 clients depending on us and closings coming up. If there's a unique opportunity and there's a family trip out to Hawaii or something like that, we don't want to be on our phones the entire time. We want to be able to enjoy life and, and enjoy that work-life balance. And so that was super helpful uh, to just always have someone else that kind of had your back, could pick up the slack when one of us you know, has something going on. Um, and so, yeah, it's just I think the lifestyle and, and really what, what Dustin touched on is, is a big, big part for me of kind of you know, this next chapter is, is being able to impact the lives of the, the advisors and agents that join our team. 
Um, you know, we got a lot of young families here. We got a lot of people that, you know, it's, it's expensive to, to live in Southern California, especially coastal Southern California. And so we feel a certain sense of responsibility to make sure that the people that trust us with their livelihoods and their families and, and this next uh, chapter in their career uh, get what they bargained for. And, and we want to do everything in our power to make them successful. And, um, and the way to do that is by helping their clients be successful. So it's kind of a trickle down effect. So that's, that's been rewarding. Yeah, no, I, I know we've, uh, you know, kind of experienced some of that together. I think it was kind of a funny story. Our, our kids are, what, maybe four days apart or something like that. And um, I, uh, I remember I had twins, you know, five and a Dustin. You have twins, obviously, a year later. Um, I remember uh, we were moving from kind of the delivery room to the room you stay in for a couple of days. And um, I was pushing one of the the uh, my children in like the little cart with in the bassinet or whatever and i was talking to you on the phone <laughs> about a deal, a deal. Uh, yeah we were trying to get something closed and um i kind of laugh he's like what are you doing and i'm like well i gotta pay for these kids <laughs> you know, so we kind of laughed about it and um and then a couple days later you did the same thing back to me you know on the same deal i think we we're trying to you said oh, i ran out of the room real quick to answer the phone <laughs> She's in labor. She, she's pushing, but it's not coming for another couple minutes. Yeah. So at the at the end of the day, we've got some really cool wives that support us. So, yeah. Exactly. You know, they understand kind of what we go through. So definitely. You know, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you guys' time. And yeah, um, You know, where where can people find you? Yeah. So best way is is our website sdbiz.com. Um, and uh, yeah, we're also on all the social media platforms. So follow our LinkedIn page. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. All right. Cool. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative and helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. For more information, or if you'd like to discuss a transaction, please go to www.jaredwjohnson.com.